Welcome to Behavioral Groups, the podcast that explores our human condition. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We talk with researchers and other interesting people to unlock the mysteries of our human behavior by using a behavioral science lens. Well, I talk to researchers and other interesting people. You, you, Tim, just get stuck oh. on a plane or something. Oh, so you're referring to the fact that I couldn't make this interview with our guest because of my travel schedule. Maybe. Maybe I am. Maybe I'm not. Oh, <laughs> I, look, you know that I would have made it if it was even remotely possible. I was looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, and I'm sure the guest would have appreciated that too. Poor guy got stuck just talking with me. I mean, uh, uh, poor guy. Not disagreeing. <laughs> no, you're supposed to disagree. Oh, my God, Tim. Oh, oh I'm God. just kidding. No, you did great. Honestly, man, after more than 370 episodes, you built up some skills. Well, you know, I learned from the best. I learned from you, you know? Yeah. Actually, in, in reality, I, I, I think that these uh, conversations that – that when you're on, you bring a different perspective. You have a different point of view. And I think that's why we work so well together. I think that that's good. Yeah. Well, that and, and, and the fact that we can make fun of each other, right? And we just, and we know that it's all in good fun. <laughs> yeah. We are the click and clack of behavioral science, even though we're not brothers. Do you think any of our listeners know who you're talking about when you say the click and clack of behavioral science? Mm, good question. I mean, we have some older listeners. I get that. But I wonder. So, all right, let's let's check this out. What? If, if you know, <laughs> okay. listeners, if you know who we're referencing when we say click and clack, let us know on social media, um, who, what that is, the reference, the first person who does that. Um, I, I will uh, give a, a behavior, a brain shift uh, journal too. How about that? All right. We'll, we'll, okay. First person that gets out there on social media hears us and can tell us who click and clack are and, and, and what that is. We'll give out a free, free brain shift journal. Okay. Enough with the impromptu discussion about us. Um, <laughs> let's tell people about this episode, which is, uh, which I think you should probably do since you were the only one there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, take that. I'll, I'll, I'll take that. All right. So our guest in this episode was Adam Mastrioni. Adam is a postdoctoral research scholar at uh, Columbia Business School and is also the author of a great blog called Experimental History. We found Adam, or I found Adam, through a few provocative tweets he sent, which led me down this rabbit hole of reading a bunch of his back issues of his blog, Experimental History, and real, really, really being intrigued by his perspective. Yeah, you know, I had me. I remember when uh, you called attention to this, and you you first reached out to Anna, and I'm really glad you did. Just yeah. really glad you did. Yeah, and I think uh, we even had a discussion on our take on it, right? Uh, that we kind of had different perspectives on some oh, of yeah. his blogs. Anyway, mm -hmm. I thought we wanted to talk to him on the show about some of his perspectives, like the impact of Freudian research on behavioral science and the limits of current psychological research and the need for a paradigm shift or, or even the fact of, do you need to really floss? Yeah. Oh, this is this is going to be good. Yeah, <laughs> I really should have been a part of this. You would have enjoyed it. Yeah. Okay. So uh, with that, listeners, we would like to urge you to grab your favorite glass of regret for not being in the room when it happened, <laughs> along with me, because <laughs> I'll be drinking the same thing, and enjoy Kurt's conversation with Adam Mastrioni.
Adam Masserani, welcome to Behavioral Groups. Thanks for having me. Well, I am happy to have you here. So for our listeners, Tim uh, unfortunately had a travel incident and he, he is can't make it. He's he's stuck in the plane somewhere. So uh, I am doing this interview solo to uh, probably Adam's uh, remorse. He's probably going, oh my gosh, I wanted Tim. But anyway, we will start with the speed round, Adam, as, as we always do. Uh, first, really important question we need to ask you, coffee or tea? Neither. Uh, Neither. Oh, yeah. Ca- caffeine makes me feel like a god, and then like I'm dying. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm like weirdly sensitive to it, uh, and and I've had en- enough like mishaps where I drink some and I'm like I feel awesome, and then five hours later I'm, I'm like please kill me, and now my wife won't <laughs> let me drink either of it unless it's like an emergency and I need to stay awake driving or something. So so you've realized over the course of the of the years that even that godlike feeling just doesn't outweigh the pain that comes. At the end. Yeah, it's yeah. it's so brief. Uh, and then later on, it, it's like, I feel terrible. Is it because things are terrible in my life? It must be that something's <laughs> gone wrong. And then like a few hours later, I'll be normal again. I'm like, oh, it was it was just because I was coming down from caffeine. It was just the caffeine, you know, blowback. Yes. All right. Well, good. Yes. All right. Second speed round question. Would you rather have dinner with your favorite musician, actor or athlete? Oh, um, I think musician, um, although it would take me a while to figure out which one. I think okay. because I would I would expect a musician to be more interesting in talking to about their craft than uh, an actor or an athlete that like being able to do a thing and being able to talk interestingly about the thing are two often orthogonal abilities. Um, and I think a musician is more likely to have the second one than like an actor might be like, I show up and I read the lines they give me. I've been an actor as well, so I know about that. Uh, an athlete is like, I run fast. Uh, and I'm like, what's that like for you? And it's like, it hurts. <laughs> like, cool. And a music, well, you you would, uh, again, Tim is going to be really bad that he's not here because he would be all over that with with you for that. All right. Third speed round question. And this might get a little personal. Flossing, yes or no? <laughs> uh, I'm a no. I'm a no on flossing. <laughs> not that I think it's bad, but I think the 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 evidence is not there. And so if you do it, you're really taking it on faith and theory that it works. But if it did work really well, it, it seems like the most obvious intervention in the world. If it worked really well, the bad studies that we've done so far on it would have shown us that it at least does something. And even though the <laughs> studies are bad and they're small and they're short, they don't really show anything. So we can at least rule out that it's a giant effect. But but your dentist told you. Uh, you, you wrote about this in a really great article. Your dentist actually yeah. – and they, your, your dentist partner called you up and talked to yes. you about it. Uh, it was the weirdest experience I've ever had. It's like, it's so difficult to like get a dentist on the phone. Like imagine actually talking to one, but one called me after hours, uh, after I had told their colleague that, that like, yeah, you know, I've read the meta-analysis on, on flossing. There's not good evidence for it. And the, 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 another person in that office called me and was like, I know what you said, uh, like accusing me. Uh, I know what you said about flossing. And he was like, I've seen the evidence, but in my professional opinion, if I had to choose between someone brushing or someone flossing, I would choose flossing. And I'm like, you're crazy. That office has since closed. Um, and I don't know if it had anything to do with that, uh, but there is actually good evidence for brushing with fluoride toothpaste. Uh, so, Well, there you go. I, I have actually, I have been doing both for a number of years and I will, I will just continue because it's part of my 
evening routine now, and I'm just so sure. accustomed to it. Too much work to, to, to switch. All right. Here is the last speed round question. And again, speed round is a kind of a misnomer. It's never a speed round. But if I'm in a conversation with you, I pretty much know when I should stop talking and we are both in agreement around that timing. Is that is that right? Is, am, am I right there? Yeah, unfortunately, no, uh, <laughs> unless we are the lucky two percent of pairs who uh, who in our study ended up saying after the conversation that it ended when I wanted it to. And the other person said uh, the same thing. Um, but ninety eight percent of people for, for them, that didn't happen. So. I fear the odds are against us. Oh, man. So this was some recent research that, that you've done. Talk, talk a little bit about what you guys were looking at and then kind of the implications of, of what that, the findings of it are. Yeah. This paper was, was, was called Do Conversations End When People Want Them To? And we had to, we had to fight with the journal to get them to allow us to use a question mark. <laughs> in the title, because it it turns out that the answer is kind of complicated. It's it's like mainly no, but it's a lot more than that. And so we're interested in this problem that people face all the time, which is you're talking to someone and eventually that has to stop. You have to go do something else. But how do you do that? Because often it is, it's offensive to say, I don't want to talk to you anymore. Goodbye. <laughs> and we often conceal our desires from one another. And so how do people solve this? And one possibility was that like this problem works itself out, that like everybody comes to understand that like this is about the right time and, and then they, they go home. So to find that out, we we did two things. We we both brought a bunch of people into the lab to have conversations, and then we surveyed them afterward. And we also surveyed a big sample of people online about the most recent conversation that they had. And in both cases, the results were the same, which is that very few people reported that the conversation that they just had ended when they first felt ready for it to end. A majority of those people said they would have wanted to leave sooner. Although on average, if you ask like, okay, how much sooner versus the people who said they want to continue, how much later, if you average that out, you get about zero, which is to say the people who wanted more wanted significantly more and the people who wanted less wanted less, but but le less than, than the other people wanted more, if that makes sense. But it does. that's extra complicated because the people who wanted less, they're bounded at zero. So if we talk for 10 minutes, I can only say I wanted to go 10 minutes sooner. But if we talk for 10 minutes, I can say I want to go for an hour longer. So like, it's hard to actually average those out. So a majority of people say, I want to go sooner. The people who want to go longer want to go uh, meaningfully longer. But of course, they don't know what's going to happen, right? That's a prediction. That's not a report on their experience. And this happens for two reasons, as far as we can tell. One is that people very rarely want to speak for the same amount of time. So when we put people in the room, had to come, come out and say like, okay, you talked for about 25 minutes. Uh, can you tell us when you first felt ready for that conversation to end? They tell us a time that is different from what the other person says. So mm -hmm. already we've got a problem here that both people can't get what they want because they want different things. And then the second problem is that they don't know what the other person wants. So when we asked them, can you estimate when you think the other person first felt ready for the conversation to end? They were off by about half of the length of the conversation. So if I don't know what you want and we don't want the same things, it's very unlikely that we're both going to get what we want. I mean, that's impossible, but also unlikely that even one of us is going to get what we want. Yeah. So next research study you should do is just podcasts and, and how long <laughs> podcasts go and how long listeners really want it to go, because I'm sure we go way too long on many of ours. But, you know, that's a whole separate issue aside. So we'll, we'll yeah. hopefully not not do that with this. So, Adam, so I, I wanted to just give our listeners a little bit of, of background. So Tim and I discovered you. We were following you on Twitter or X or whatever it was called these days. And you'd written this great post and, and it was from your blog. You have a blog called Experimental History. Did I get that right? 
Yep. And you had written about the recent fraud claims that kind of have rocked behavioral science and specifically talking about those fraud claims against Dan Ariely and against Francesco Gino. And obviously that's been discussed a lot within this field. It, it has been kind of taken on its own life in a certain way. But what I found very interesting, and I think what I wanted to, to talk to you about today is your take on how even if everything was made up in their work, if every study that Dan Ariely had done, every study that Francesca Gino had done, that in the big picture, it's this, uh, it wouldn't really matter. And you, you, you kind of coined this, it's a wonderful life concept. Uh, you know, if I never lived, what, how would the world change? And, you, you know, if these re, you know, research studies had never been done, how would that have impacted that? Can you expand on that uh, idea and explain what, what you were trying to say with that? Yeah, I, w I was trying to to show that like what um, this this scandal, I think, is better thought of as sort of like a celebrity scandal, like from the social angle <laughs> rather than a scientific scandal. So like if it turns out that all the allegations are true, which I have no idea if they are or not, which is important to say, because now there's some lawsuits because um, <laughs> we don't want to be they, sued either. Here we go. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <this> <laughs> yes. Uh, but it, but let's imagine that they all turn out to be true. What have we lost scientifically? And yeah. uh, I don't like saying this, right? It's not something that that I, I take pleasure in saying about another person's work, but I don't think we actually lose that much, in part because both of those researchers are working in a tradition that I think was really productive at the beginning when it started in the 70s, and I think now has sort of run its course, and now we are really <laughs> squeezing uh, the last drops out of it. And, and it is what some people call like the heuristics and biases tradition or judgment and decision making. Basically, the foundational idea being that humans are generally pretty good at navigating their lives. However, they rely on some ways of solving problems that you can engineer situations where those ways go haywire. Mm. And the cynical version of this, which is what a lot of people take away from this, is like, oh, people are really stupid and they make mistakes all the time. Yeah. And I have another piece called the the radical idea that people aren't stupid, that that like I think that's the wrong take on on this research. And even from the beginning, that's not what people were really trying to do. But other people have like taken that and run with it. But that insight has been really productive. We found a lot of ways that like, oh, if you ask questions in this one way versus this slightly different way, like people give really different answers. That's been really interesting for about 50 years. Yeah. And so like, that's great. Uh, I think we did some cool stuff. However, I don't think we're, there's a lot of progress left to make there, and that is where both of those researchers are working. Now, in, in the case of Ariely, what he was really good at, and I mean, remains good at, he's still around, is popularizing that research and, and making it mm -hmm. accessible and entertaining. And so if he never existed, you would lose that for sure. Uh, but in terms of the foundational scientific insights, like what we know now versus what we uh, knew before, I don't think there's a lot there. And I think it goes to a deeper. Sorry, go go ahead. No, actually, that's where I was. I, I, let's go to that deeper part, because I think yeah. that there's an underlying component within this that we have to think about the behavioral science world in general. And I'd love to kind of explore that more. 
Yeah. So the uh, like the optimistic take on this or the positive take on this is, is like, look, we've got a solid insight here that's been worked on for a long time from many different angles, from many different people. And it doesn't really matter what one person does because that knowledge is distributed and embedded now. And uh, and I think that that's a good take. The other take on it is that we're kind of stuck in what I think of as a proto paradigm. So not a full fledged scientific paradigm. Uh, like other fields have developed, where we have these set ways of doing things and we keep iterating in the same domain without actually pushing our understanding forward. So like I had this terrible realization a couple of years ago going to a conference where I was like, wait, everything that we're doing here is sort of just a take on all the things that I read about in my intro psych textbooks 10 years ago. Like what has really changed? What have we really discovered um, like since I've been here? And uh, and so one of the points I make in that piece is, is like, I don't think we have a ton to show for ourselves in the past 30 years in terms of like the big fundamental insights, like nothing on the scale that uh, that like Kahneman and Tversky had back in the 70s. Uh, I think right. that was the last to me clear time, at least in social psychology, um, that uh, that there's like this clear inflection point that things are different after that than they were before. Um, people disagree with me on, on this, just to be <laughs> clear, but, but, but I think if you, if you look at the past, it's not, it's not great. Right. Well, and, and, and you bring up, and I'm going to quote from one of your papers that you wrote, you know, there's no world changing insight like relativity, evolution, or DNA, nor any smaller, but still very cool discoveries like polymerase chain reaction. I'm sure I just messed up pronouncing that CRISPR or the Higgs boson, you know? So I, when we think about this and, and there is a, a component to that, right? You look back and you look at Kahneman Tversky, you look at the, the groundbreaking work from the late seventies, early eighties that they were doing. And then you can go, we, we built slight changes off of that, which have had in some instances, some pretty important impact. You look at, you know, save more tomorrow and some of those programs, mm -hmm. and there has been positive impact on the, on the world and on individuals. But to that larger extent, where do we need to go as a as kind of a field? Where, what should we yeah. be, what should we be doing? Because I don't know if most researchers that are out there and, and we can go back and, and, and talk about the, the science and, and how it, it works of, you know, I'm adding this little bit to the literature and this little bit and over course of time that makes into a, a big impact or not. But where do you think we should be looking? What, what should we be doing? And I, I'll, I'll go back because you wrote a, a paper about, you know, you know, launching, trying to turn one big ship or, you know, yeah. launching many small ships. And I don't know if that's where you want to take this, but uh, yeah. go from there. I think what we need to be doing is uh, trying to turn psychology into a paradigmatic science. Um, okay. And a, a so what does that mean? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's get, yeah. Let's, let's get uh, that explained for the listeners out there. What does that mean? Uh, a, a paradigm here being a useful way of organizing knowledge and acquiring new knowledge. So I think one of the best examples that we have is like the periodic table in chemistry. Which is to say that, that like we realized in the middle of the 1800s that like if you order the elements that we've discovered in this certain way, they have certain regularities that are really interesting. And 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 also there's gaps in like we're missing elements here. Like we've got a number 44 and we've got a number 46, but we don't have a number 45. Uh, we think if you went looking for it, you could find a number 45 and then people ended up doing that. 
part of what's interesting about the discovery of the periodic table is that they did this before they knew exactly what was ordering them. They, they it was going to be another like sixty years before they uh, discovered like the nucleus, and, and they knew that like we're ordering them based on the uh, number of protons in the nucleus. So even without a, a complete understanding of how the system worked, they were able to organize their knowledge in such a way that they could go. There's regularities here, and there's missing pieces here, and so that both organizes what we know already and organizes our future efforts. And now we're at the point where like it is it's it's really hard to uh, to do any kind of work without thinking in those terms that that turned out to be really useful. Another paradigmatic paradigm shift is like the movement from Aristotelian physics to to modern physics that like in, in Aristotle's view, the world is made of four different elements, I think, and uh, and they have their specific order and, and motion is the movement of things back to where they're supposed to be. So uh, so air is supposed to be above water. So if you like take some water and put it under the air, it's going to rise up back through the water and be back where the air is. And, and there's a great piece that I read recently about how like if you if you think through it, it, it does make a lot of sense from the inside. It, it is consistent yeah. with a lot of things you see in the world, but you can't show up in the world of physics today and go like, I used Aristotle's physics to like do, you know, I, I used one of the four <laughs> elements. It doesn't work anymore. It, it is, uh, it, it's like nonsense now. What we need in psychology is a point at which the things before become nonsense and the things after uh, become sensical, a, a way of of structuring the things that we know and, and organizing like the discovery of things that we don't know. It's difficult to talk about because it, like, it is like the acquisition of a new language. Right. But from the be best that we can tell, and uh, and Thomas Kuhn wrote a lot about this, obviously, this is where I'm getting a lot of this uh, back in the 60s, that like, this is actually how scientific disciplines make progress. That it's, it is both through the acquisition of like each little brick in the edifice, but then you start finding bricks that don't fit anywhere and you go, wait, like, wait, we actually have to tear down the structure that we have now and build a new one that can accommodate these new bricks. And in so doing, you lose a lot of the bricks that you had already. And so it's not just the steady acquisition of additional facts. It's that it's, in fact, the acquisition of additional errors that make the, the current paradigm untenable and that require a, a revolution and a new one. The, I, I think the issue that we have. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I can go on no, about this for a no, long time. I, no, this is, this is really interesting because again, this is, this is one of those aspects of as we look at what behavioral sciences has brought and and is uh, continuing to bring um, what I'm hearing you say is that we can go on this way and you'll get these small incremental pieces and they might have an impact here or there but the larger and better way of maybe approaching this is looking at this with a different lens is taking this and saying how do we organize what we already know into a system like a periodic table that we can take and look at this to, to to look at the larger impact and then find where the big gaps are and maybe go after those. If I if I summarize yeah. that in in a manner that, yeah. that is yes. appropriate. Yeah. That if we keep doing what we're doing, it's not clear that we will continue to make progress. And part of the reason I suspect this is it's not clear that we've made a lot of progress recently doing what we're doing. And so I, I sometimes at conferences like pose this question to people like in 50 years, what will be different? Like, what do you expect us to know that we don't know now? And people have a really hard time answering that question. Like, what will we have besides a, a stack of additional papers? Yeah, well, I'll go. So you also in, in some of your things. So you, Paul Bloom, who's been a guest on our show a couple of different times, 
you know, you you brought up a question that he had posed in one of his about, hey, what is, you know, some of the cool research I'm paraphrasing here and kind of brought that up. And you and him then kind of had a back and forth, very cordial and very good. (laughs) But I I think he might disagree on some of what you're saying here, saying that there have been some insights that we have that we can take and move forward. Is, is Am I paraphrasing that correctly? Yes. Yeah. So Paul's point is, I mean, look at all the cool stuff that we've discovered. Yeah. And, and, and we argued about like, well, when did these discoveries actually happen? I was talking about the past <laughs> 30 years. I think a lot of the things he talks about are like much earlier than that, or at least the beginning of, of those ideas. If we're going back to like the very beginning of experimental psychology, then like, have we ever done anything? I think, yes, we've done a lot. Yeah. Um, and but but I, I think we both agree that that's actually not the most interesting part of our of our disagreement. And my uh, my take anyway is, is that I think we are in agreement that uh, that like we will make progress when we discover a paradigm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think we might disagree on whether that will uh, or, or like the thing that we do need to do to make progress is to discover a paradigm. I think he might think I don't want to speak for for him, but but my supposition is he might think that we can get there by doing more of what we're doing. And I think we can't get there by doing more of what we're doing, that we actually need to do something different. Uh, Yeah, I'm going to paraphrase this really badly, but there's the the old statement of, you know, science moves forward when the old guard dies, you know, kind (laughs) of that that piece of, you know, and and. I don't think that's what you're necessarily saying here, but but is there an element of that where, you know, I mean, we still you have you have two Nobel laureates that are still active and and working in this field. You have numbers of people who have have built entire careers around finding those that next bias, that next piece. So do we have to kind of bring up this new generation of people who are saying, all right, I, I don't want to find the the 310th bias that we know. I, I want to be able to put this into, you know, as you say, a paradigm or find something larger to that degree. Is that is that part of this process or is that not necessary? I wish that we could solve this problem just by waiting for the funerals to come uh, <laughs> as macabre as that would be. But I don't think this is actually a case of there's a younger generation that's agitating for uh, for something better. And there's an older generation saying uh, that, like, no, we need to, to keep it the way it is. It's not like every old person is like the moon is made of cheese. And all the young people are like, <laughs> I think it's made of rocks uh, and like they can't get their papers published. I actually think the 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 thing that is stifling this this progress is the intense competition for scarce resources that mm. that like uh, it is so difficult to get a job. It's difficult to publish papers. It's difficult to get ahead. And it's especially difficult if you want to try to do any of those things while doing stuff that's going to look weird because revolutionary science always looks weird. And uh, and so uh, our main institutions of doing science are really optimized for for what Thomas Kuhn would have called normal science. Uh, <laughs> like everything's great, guys. Keep doing what you're doing. It's like the moment when we we have the periodic table and we need to fill in the blanks. I think that is what we're optimized for. But actually, but if it ever came to pass, we needed to overturn the periodic table. It'd be really bad at doing that. Not so much because the old people have too much power. I think the young people have too little courage. Mm. And that, you know, the the structures are, are against them, that people don't want to hire someone who's going to do things that aren't legible to them and that aren't, 
going to increase their H index and, you know, uh, yeah. and, and improve the numbers of the institution. I think that's really what you need if, if you want to do something revolutionary. Well, and you, you get to a point where you're talking about some of the incentives that we have of, of how people get rewarded and recognized, how you gain tenure, how organ, how, how institutions gain, you know, research grants and prestige and get, you know, top people coming in. And so all of those are structured on a way and, and going back, not that we you know, need to, to go back to this, but it goes back to some of the issues that I have around when we talked about Ariely and Francesca Gino and like, so why did this happen at the underlying root cause of this as opposed to, you know, the specifics? It's like we're set up for a system that is looking for the novel that rewards that unique idea that kind of stands out but isn't so far out there that it, it it's too crazy and so all of that taken into account i think um what i'm hearing you say is it's not it's not this war of of the old guard against the new guard it's just it's a it's a it needs to be a shift in our mindset in how we think about this and that needs to happen and it can happen might be happening with with some of the old guard right now and it's just it's it's the institutions and kind of how the the world is structured that it it's just you're running into friction points that it makes it harder to make that change. Yeah. And a lot of people think of this in terms of, you know, we've got bad incentives. We need to change the incentives. I don't disagree with that. And I I'm certainly uh, support anyone who wants to work inside the, the system to make the incentives better. But I think actually there's a lot more to be gained in diversifying the incentives. Mm. That uh, that this system is optimized for producing a certain kind of science, and it, it's and we need that kind of science. We do need people to do normal science, and in fact, I think we need an ecosystem of people doing science in different ways. And I'm happy for this to be one of the ways that uh, that you know people publish papers and peer reviewed journals. If that's the way that they like to do it, if that's the way they think they do their their best work, I have no interest in stopping them. What I have an interest in starting is a lot of people doing things in different ways and actually in recapturing some of the diversity that we used to have in the, in the way that people approached science and communicated it. So I'm reading right now a, a history of um, the Royal Society, which, which is uh, sort of like the first professional society of scientists. They weren't even called yeah. that then, um, but in the early 1600s in uh, in the UK. And I mean, the first meetings are basically show and tell. It's people doing weird stuff. They're they're like, I found a weird calf. Look, it's got a bulbous head. And like, look, I, I've got these like glass beads and they like rise in water. What's up with that? And there wasn't a lot of standardization in the approaches that people were taking. And this was famously a pretty fertile time for science. The, that next hundred years of people basically screwing around, doing things that they thought were cool, got us a lot of the fundamental insights that we still work with today. And we don't really have that anymore. There's not a lot of screwing around because if you screw around, you fall out of the pipeline. And so that's what I would love to see more, like more a, a bigger ecosystem that can support more people doing weirder things. Yeah. Adam, on that, and I don't know if this is part of what you're thinking of, but when you talk about the the Royal Society and I, the way that I envision it is that it, it's people coming from a whole lot of different backgrounds as well. And I think when we look at the world, academic world, research world of today, we don't mix those different disciplines as much as I think happened maybe in the past. We don't 
we don't, you know, there, there are some, I mean, I know Carnegie Mellon has their decision signs where they have, you know, rocket scientists and other people on in, in that same um, department. But for most organizations, you're in psychology and you're not, you're in experimental psychology or you're even, or you're in counseling or you're in social psychology and, and they don't even cross over that much. And so that diversity of thought and idea, is that some of this weird kind of science that you're talking about being able to maybe mix some of the physical sciences with some of the, you know, social sciences, other pieces along that line? Yeah, the I mean, one big advantage the Royal Society had is exactly this: that uh, you can have people coming in who do meteorology, and other people do geology, and other people are physicians, and other people um, uh, are thinking about heredity. And some of those are, are actually the same person doing all of those things. <laughs> what they didn't have in terms of background is, uh, I mean, everybody in that room obviously was a white British guy with uh, with uh, usually of independent means. Yeah. And so that is a way in, in which they they had a lot less diversity that like we beat them on that now, but they beat us dramatically in terms of like the diversity of approaches that people had. And I think the diversity of attitudes that people had toward science. I mean, Lavoisier, one of the the pioneers of uh, microbiology and, and the and the microscope, he, he made his money as a draper selling drapes. Um, <laughs> and and like this was what he did. Uh, this is really what he loved to do um and he he would in the words i think of the royal society itself would like would, would send like unhinged chaotic letters to the royal society about the things that he was doing like we don't have i think enough of uh drapers who are sending unhinged letters <laughs> that is what i'd love to, if there to be more of and i'd love if they weren't all just white guys obviously yeah uh, and that's that's a problem that we've been working on a lot which is good but i think we have lost this dimension of diversity which is like people doing weirder things. And yeah, one of the weird things you could do is not have to be just a specialist in one field. I think this is an illusion that has developed over the past couple of generations that like, well, that's the only way that you could make progress in a field is you have to specialize because there's so much to know. I think this is actually a lot has a lot more to do with like the social reality that we're dealing with that like in order to be recognized by the geologists, you have to be very steeped in what the geologists are doing. But that doesn't mean that you need to do that in order to make progress in geology. In fact, you may be better off not being steeped in their assumptions and in their ways of doing things because you might find uh, like an insight that they couldn't find. I certainly feel this way in psychology. I think one of the, the most insightful books about psychology was written by an electrical engineer who like thought about it very differently and learned a lot about, uh, you know, the things that the, the psychologists and the neuropsychologists had figured out about brain lesion studies and, and whatever. He wasn't just spouting off, but he was bringing a very different perspective and, and expertise to the topic. And, and I think if, if you tried to do that today, I think if you were an electrical engineer who's, who's like, hey, psychologist, I got something to say to you, they would go like, well, you have to spend 30 years becoming one of us before mm -hmm. you can be one of us. And I think we would lose out. Uh, we're, we are losing out. Okay. I need to get the name of that book and we'll put it in the show notes. So if you <laughs> don't have it on top of your head, we'll, we'll email yeah. later. But if you do. Um, and then secondly, so uh, I, I brought this up earlier, that, but you had this uh, article and you talked about this idea of moving, you know, this big ship and changing its course or launching hundreds of little ships. And I just, that metaphor, that analogy, I forget which one it is, uh, just stuck with me. And can you talk about that? What, because you, you were arguing that instead of trying to turn this big ship, 
we just need to have a lot more ships out there. Is that uh, is that what we've been talking about here? Is it something different? How how do you t- how do you talk about that? Yeah, it's exactly what we've been uh, talking about here. Just in this terms of um, right now, if you want to do basic research, you are probably on one big ship called Academia. And that ship is gigantic. There's a lot of money in it. There's a lot of people in it. And if you want to change its direction, it's really difficult because you've got to convince everybody to turn a certain way and everybody disagrees about which way it should go. I don't have any problem with that ship existing or even with it being big. I just don't want it to be the only ship because mm. big ships have their uh, advantages. They can move a lot of people, right? They, uh, You have like gains in scale of everybody being together, doing the same thing and organizing and there's HR or whatever, but they turn really slowly. And yeah. and science is, is about exploring the space of possibilities and you explore a lot faster when you have many smaller things going in many different directions because whenever they discover something true, they can report back to the other ships and now everybody benefits from it. So we don't all need to be on the same ship going in the same direction uh trying to dis- all discover things together there can be people going off and doing their own things and figuring something out that we wouldn't have figured out going in the direction that we are going in and so a lot what a lot of people want to do when they want to reform academia is turn the big ship which is fine i think it could go in a better direction but i think there's a lot more to be gained in launching little ships that can do things totally differently yeah again in my head i'm loving that 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 vision, I'm sitting here going, oh, have the big ship, but oh, you you can have a bunch of little ships that have come other places, or you can even have, you know, the the boats off of that big ship. You you might have been on that big ship for a long time, and now you want to take that little little boat and go explore those little islands over there that the big ship can't go to. Yeah. Anyway, big, yeah. I love the analogy, love love the the, <laughs> the the piece that we're talking about there. All right, I want to bring up one other uh, again um, for for listeners. Uh, I implore you go out and sign up for. Uh, is it a blog? Is it a newsletter? Experimental history? Is it? Yeah. Uh, what What is it? It It defies <laughs> de- definition. Uh, it It is all of those things. Uh, it's fantastic. Anyway, it is really fantastic. Every time I read one of your articles, I get really excited because. It, it brings up – you have a per- perspective that I love that I think is really interesting. And one of those is that you had talked in, in, in one of the, the articles about is uh, that scientific uh, certainty is something that is not really available, right? And, and, um, and you bring it up in a really interesting manner. I don't know if you want to share kind of how you start that piece. <laughs> yeah, this is this is a, a piece I wrote for the the New York Times that I wanted to title. Um, I'm so sorry, but you don't, you don't get to know the truth right now. And I guess in like the massive A/B testing that they do when they put articles out, I guess the search for scientific certainty is futile. It like one. <laughs> But uh, a lot of people don't know this when you write. This is part of why I write a blog where I get to pick these things. But when you write for a major outlet, they get to pick the title. Yeah. Uh, and then people are like, why did you call it that? And I'm like, I didn't. Uh, <laughs> but Some but editor it, did. That was back there. Yes. They ran, as you said, number of yes. A-B tests on their, their panel. Yes. And they're like, oh, this is the one. But the piece be- begins with uh, the, the fact that I don't floss. And uh, and I have felt shame my whole life uh, every time I go into the dentist because there's a point where they go, do you floss? And first of all, I go like, shouldn't you be able to tell looking at my teeth whether I floss or not? If it's so good, um, yeah. wouldn't you be able to know? Like, you would know whether I exercise uh, by looking at my muscles. You would know whether I bathe by smelling me. Why can't you know whether I floss by looking at my teeth? But hey, that's beside the point. 
And then I found a meta-analysis by this group called the Cochrane Collaboration, who what they do is they do these big meta-analyses. They pull together all these studies. They do work that I think is is both extremely important and very boring to to actually do, right? And so good on them for uh, <laughs> for doing that. And so they pulled together any of the this, the experimental uh, studies that have been done on uh, flossing to on whatever dental outcomes and found like the found first the evidence is really bad in that the studies are not good they're at high risk of bias with yeah. like their assessment tool because they're small or you know they they don't have good randomization procedures or uh, or whatever there's this whole checklist that they go through of, of rating the the risk of bias of the study so the studies aren't good but to the extent that they have any results at all the results are not obviously in favor of flossing they don't find evidence that it hurts but they really don't find much evidence at all that it helps and they haven't even looked at things like does flossing impact the number of cavities that you get? And so that's all fine. It's fine not to know, but it is not fine to act like you know when you don't. And so the fact that flossing is universally recommended and enforced by shame in dentist's office toward innocents like me, I think it is a, is a real misstep. Uh, and so the point that I make in, in the piece is I would so much have rather had a conversation with my dentist where they were like, look, nobody's done a good study on this. So we can't say for sure whether it works or not. However, it should work because of this way that we think dental health works and plaque and whatever. In my experience, I think it works. And that's why I encourage you to do it. And I might have gone like, okay, well, uh, maybe that's good enough for me or maybe it's not good enough for me. But what I didn't want was to be lied to and to be shamed for for not doing something that we don't have the certainty to make this a universal recommendation. If it's so obviously good, it should be very easy to discover that effect, even in these bad studies. Um, and and, and in the piece, I go into other things as well. Yeah. Well, that, that's that's the piece, right? I mean, you use this as an example, but it, it's it goes to the larger piece where and I think some of this, and and again, correct me if I'm making too big a leap, which I think is what we're often talking about here, um, is that when, you know, there is a study that is done, and I'll bring up another piece that you, you wrote here, but if there's a study that's done and then you go, oh, well, that's, that's the truth. And so universally, this should, should work. Like talking to strangers is a really good thing. And, <laughs> and you know, both yeah. people are happy at the end of that. And so maybe I should go and join, uh, uh, you know, uh, an escape room and be the the stranger in a party. Yeah. And yet that doesn't necessarily work out all the time. Is uh, um, and again, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm I'm bringing this in for people who don't know. Uh, you wrote a wonderful article about you know that experience. We can talk about that too. But it, in more in generally, uh, is it this idea of that we we tend to over generalize or say this is a study and and i think it was roy baumaster or max bazerman i can't remember which of the two that we talked about um when they were talking about the replication crisis what they were saying is you know what you know it, again if there wasn't fraud if there wasn't anything going on here what we can always say is we, we go look in this situation in this time with this group of people this was the result that we found now, if you generalize that out, which is what science is supposed to do, you know, that's great, but it doesn't always happen that way. And is that I, I, that's where I was going when, when I read what you were saying? Is it my yeah. way off base? No, I think that's part of it. 
So yeah, what we often do in, in the social sciences is, is we create a story. And I don't mean a story in the sense of like, uh, we, we do storytelling to sell our results, although we also do that. But when you put people in a situation and they like take actions and a result occurs, like that's a story that like that is what that unit of information is. Stories are really powerful because we remember them better. They're a useful way of organizing knowledge. However, they're easily overgeneralizable. And what a, what a story really shows you is that a thing is possible because a thing happened. Mm-hmm. This is, I, I think, often what studies are actually showing is that it, a thing is possible. And it just turns out that in most cases, there's not a good reason to suspect that the thing was not possible before it happened, Mm. which is why some of our most legendary studies are the ones in which there was good reason to think that a thing wasn't possible before it happened. I think the Milgram studies are an example of this that uh, and I mean, he, I think, very cannily actually got people uh, to go on record saying that they didn't think that people were going to shock a stranger to death in in the laboratory. And then he shows that they did, or at least they think that they're doing that. These have been criticized a lot, by, by the way. And I think actually this is a case in which the criticisms don't hold up, that I think the the, uh, the main findings from those studies, I think, are still sound, even having read some of the critiques. But I think the reason why those, those studies are so important is because we did not think beforehand that that could happen. Yeah. And now we know that it can happen. That doesn't mean that it does happen all the time. That doesn't mean that like this is a good explanation for yeah. all kinds of different things. But it it uh, it falsifies a really strong and reasonable null hypothesis. That's why I think it's a, it's a great study. So again, when when I was reading this, it, it brought up to my mind. All right, so paradox of choice: this idea that hey, more choice. We we like that. We prefer that. Economists would say that yes, we always want need more choice. And there was some really great research that showed well that doesn't necessarily always hold true. And so now it's kind of become the story as you talk about, well, we need to limit choices in order to get better outcomes in various different things. And and Rory Sutherland had this great insight. He said, you know, and I think you brought you bring up this idea of context. Um, and Rory Sutherland said, that works great. But if I'm going and, and the study was originally done with jams in a supermarket, right? You had yeah. 36 jams that were on a, a table versus six and you got a coupon and how many people actually bought the jams afterwards and the, the you limited the number and you had more people actually buying those jams. But he said, that's great if I'm going into a supermarket, right? And I have all these other things that I'm trying to buy. But he goes, if I go to a store called the World of Jams, right? And I am there to kind of explore jams. I don't want six jams. I want hundreds and hundreds of jams. Mm-hmm. And and so this idea of limiting choice in that context uh, doesn't make sense. And yet we tend to over kind of index on that. And therefore, that's part of, you know, as, as, as you're saying, we, we can't just take this one study and then apply it across every domain in every situation. So, yeah. Th- yeah. Anyway, not a question there, but, you know, just kind of a, my, <laughs> my own statement on on that. I know we are getting um, near the end. And if Tim was here, he'd want to talk about music. But I do have to just ask, what's it like to ruin birthday parties? Um, y- you know? <laughs> Because uh, I, I, I teed this up earlier, but what, what you know, yeah, tell that story. It's, t- it's, <laughs> it's terrible at the time, but it makes for a good story later. So I, I was in Atlanta like five years ago for a conference. I was and I stayed there an extra day because I thought a friend of mine was going to be in town and wasn't. And I'm really into escape rooms. Um, and at the time, I was also hopped up on all this uh, research about the unforeseen benefits of talking to strangers. 
And I thought, why not put these things together and sign up for escape rooms where I can see online that this used to be easier. They've tamped down on this a little bit for good reason, where I could see like, oh, there, there's like five out of eight slots taken. I'll be number six. Yeah. And, uh, and I set up for two of them. And I showed up and it was immediately clear that I was making this worse for everybody. Because like the 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 first one was like a birthday party. And it was like, you know, there's some 30 something like, oh, we never get together. Like, let's get a babysitter and and I'll like go to an escape room. And then I'm there and I'm like, <laughs> hey, I like I like escape rooms, guys. <laughs> like and and then quickly I was like, uh, uh, my flight was uh, canceled and that's why I'm here. And uh, and they were really polite about it, but it was not the right place to be making friends. <laughs> and then I stupidly went to the second one too. I'd already paid like the 35 bucks. So what was I going to do? Uh, sunk cost. Sunk Famously, cost. you're supposed course. to honor, yeah, yeah, you're supposed yeah. to honor them. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so I realized that like, while it may be true that you can create situations in which people say like, it's not going to be good to talk to this new person. And then they're wrong. That's not always the case that it requires uh, the addition of some wisdom uh, and some mental elbow grease to figure out like where where that is true for you and where it's not going to be. So this is, a, this is another case where it is useful to falsify this null hypothesis uh, that people seem to have that like talking to strangers is always bad. They're wrong about that. Sometimes it's much better than they expect. It right. doesn't mean that it's always going to be much better <laughs> than they expect. It doesn't even necessarily mean on average it's going to be better than they expect, although it seems pretty easy to find that effect. So it seems pretty prevalent to me. Yeah. And and I would believe that like in general we're probably a little too hesitant, but that doesn't mean that we're crazy. And so yeah. when I describe what I did to people and they're like I would never do that. I'm like you're 100% right. You're, you're totally right. You should not do this. <laughs> well, and I still, you know, I've, I've read the same research and I I know I should when I fly, I should talk to that person next to me, but nope, I still don't. I you know, yeah. it's like I'm I'm just not not there yet. And I I think for me at least the context doesn't matter. All right, kind of making sure that Tim doesn't, you know, strangle me later today when we get together. Uh, I need to ask some musical questions. So, sure. Uh, very first one, Baz Lurum, Everybody's free to wear sunscreen. <laughs> Do you think that was the best graduation speech ever turned into a song? <laughs> Uh, I would love that when I was a, a kid, like downloading music on LimeWire, uh, <laughs> when I was like 12 and I found that I was like, this is cool. Um, <laughs> but now I think it, it dramatically overstates the benefits of sunscreen, which, uh, at least the evidence for the benefits of sunscreen, sunscreen may be great. The jury's still out. Uh, the meta analyses yeah. don't show any effect on skin cancer, although maybe that'll ultimately be wrong. We'll, we'll yeah. see. We'll see. But even certainly back in like 94 or whenever then that, that yeah. came out, we, we were not we were not at that point then even even then. <laughs> anyway, sorry. I know. Again, I'm, I'm referencing a whole bunch of your papers. And again, I, I implore our listeners to go out and, and, and read because they're just a they're insightful, but B, they're just they're funny as well. Um, and they, they bring a smile to your face on a more uh, as a, the typical question that Tim might ask you is this if you were on a deserted island for a year just very comfortable right everything is there for you you're not having to like you know be the uh, you know forage for food and find all that other stuff but you had only uh, an iPod for entertainment and on that iPod was only two artists works their entire catalog of of music which two artists would you want on that iPod? 
One would be they might be giants oh. um, who uh, like kind of turned me weird. They like irradiated me when uh, <laughs> when I was a kid in the middle of nowhere in Ohio and didn't have access to a lot of culture and discovered them. And it was like, oh, the, the, you can make music like this. And they're they're like their repertoire is very deep and very yeah. varied. And so I, I think I could spend a lot of time with them as another artist. Um I, I might go with uh, with the Talking Heads. They might be too similar. To, I was going to say might they, they have a very very similar vibe. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm probably going to end up going insane on this desert island. The problem <laughs> is I don't listen deeply enough into people's repertoires. I find singles that I like and I listen yeah. to them hundreds of times until I despise them and then I move on to the next. The single. Next single. I'm, I'm like then... a, yeah, I'm like a succubus of music. Um, uh, <laughs> where... well, but, but Adam, then you, 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 you need to have that deep catalog, right? Because you can, yes. yeah, you can do that. So, you know, they might be giants, pretty big catalog. I think talking heads probably a pretty big catalog as well. Yeah. So you, you, you know, granted it's, it's very similar in, in, yeah. Some, uh, they might be giants has some very different sounds though. They're very different. You know, what, what a birdhouse in, um, what, I forget birdhouse what that, in your soul. But, yeah. One of my all time favorite songs. So it's just, you know, yeah. amazing. So Adam, thank you. This has been very insightful, great work and uh, just a pleasure to, to talk with you. Thank you for being a guest on behavioral groups. Of course. Thanks for having me. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I share ideas on what we learned from my discussion with Adam, have a free-flowing conversation, <laughs> and groove on whatever else comes into my informed brain. Uh, no, I got to listen to the conversation too. Uh, but I was there. I oh, was it's... in the room. Okay, so that just means you had more control. It <laughs> <laughs> doesn't mean it was better. <laughs> no, it was a it was a really good conversation. As as you guys heard, I mean, the energy I thought was good. I thought there was um, lots of really great insights and yeah. great kind of perspectives. And not not that I agree with all of them. Not that I think everybody should agree with them. But I think you you would have loved to have been part yes. of that. You know would have loved it so many things to talk about and let's can we just start with the idea that adam really is a big thinker yeah he has uh this unique perspective all of us have unique perspectives but there is something that is differentiated in this big perspective view that he has uh, especially arcing through history and i found that fascinating when when listening to your conversation well uh, well this yeah. idea right that and i know that you pointed this out in our conversation this about you know drapers from the 16th century as right. scientists uh, yeah i mean it's it's not just cool it's it's not just novel it's not just cool but it combines this aspect of being a really important insight to go hmm that could get us thinking differently about the way we look at science today. And that's what that's the bridge that that he makes so beautifully. Well, and I think it's really interesting because you and I are both practitioners. We are not working in academia. We're not necessarily doing research and research papers and publishing. I mean, mm -hmm. I had to do that for my dissertation, but that's that's the last time I did anything like that. But we are bringing a different perspective and applying. And I think we could probably 
contribute to the literature, contribute to the research because we're in the we're in the field, we're in the mess, yeah. we're in the the goo, as they like to say. Well, uh, two things about that. One is in my academic partnerships, in partnering with with researchers uh, from a variety of different universities around the world, I always respect the researchers, and all of them do this, by the way, this isn't just some, but they say, so what do you think? Okay, we're going to do a project. Here's here's the client's issue. Here's the database of people that we're working with. Here's the problem that we're trying to understand. What do you think? And then they, re, you know, those those academics have a respect for, uh, from my perspective as being a professional in the field, my observations. Yeah. And the second thing I want, so I'm grateful for that. And the second thing I want to say is that I was just at a at a conference this week in Atlanta. And uh, somebody who is, uh, who is an author of, of kind of a non-science pop, you know, psychology book, which is, a, and it's a good book, by the way. He says to me, so I was looking at your LinkedIn profile and, you know, when you introduced yourself to me yesterday, Tim, you said that you were in behavioral science, but I see that your, your first job in behavioral science was just last year <laughs> in a really dismissive way. I'm like, dude. We we don't have to have a job title to be of behavioral science to be a practitioner of behavioral science. Oh yeah. my gosh, that that is just interesting when you put it that way. That just is blows my mind because behavioral science and we've talked about this. Behavioral science is this idea of you know identifying why we do what we do, and we're all. We, we talk about this. We're all accidental behavioral scientists. We yes, all yes. study this all the time. And you're not even accidental. It, so it wasn't in your title. But man, that's exactly what you've been doing for the past 20 plus years. Yeah. And I yeah. Uh, I would have been. Well, and I think that this is part of Adam's story, right? Uh, that we as practitioners have something to say and that's, in um, the scientific community. And, and this idea that if you're thinking like this person in this Atlanta conference and going, oh, you don't have the background or the credentials or the, the, the you didn't go to this university to study this, therefore, what can you bring to this conversation is wrong, yeah. right? That's yeah. what Adam is saying, is saying that yes. Yes. we can be a Draper and a behavioral scientist and an astronomer, astronomer, can I even say that word? But that, I think, is really important as we think through we as a field are going and just science in general. I think that's a even a bigger perspective beyond the behavioral science world into any kind of science world. Yeah. And you could even take that. I'm going to making a big leap here. You could take that into business. You could take that into nonprofit kind of pieces. This Absolutely. idea of getting different perspectives, having a different viewpoint is really important because you do get a different view of the world from your history, your background, various different pieces that can shine a different light onto things that you may not see because you have blinders on because of what you've been through so yeah so f that Agreed. guy in atlanta and <laughs> damn it we're going forward with stuff so i want to know what your experience was like uh when you started talking about the dan Ariely and francesca gino 
fraud issues with Adam. Yeah. So this is interesting. And, and he has a, so Adam has a very unique perspective on this. And, and prior to getting onto this, we talked about this, but this idea that if, Hey, we took all of Dan's work, all of Francesca's work, and we found out that it was all fraud and we removed it from the literature. We did a, it's a wonderful life and they were never here. Right. Boom. From the scientific part, the literature, actual literature part, what Adam is saying is how, how big of a difference would that make in the overall scheme of, of the science? And his argument is not that much. Yeah. And I think there's, there's something to be said about that, that we have thousands of people doing research in these areas that we have practitioners like you and me many more thousands who are doing you know application of this and the idea that by removing the 50 100 papers that they have worked on or did that you know is that going to actually change what we're the the knowledge base that we have and he's saying maybe a little maybe a bit but you might have a different perspective i do and not to i'm not going to belabor it but i i would just say that i i'm not sure that i'm comfortable agreeing with that because i can imagine counter evidence to that and and i and by saying that and maybe it's not so much just the literature but if we just take sign at the top the the article that was published that was retracted because of fraudulent data that ironically Dan and Francesca worked on together, uh, but also Max Bazerman and, and uh, Anita Majar yeah. also worked on. There were several studies in that, but if, if sign at the top was evidentially sort of authorized and appropriate and it was shown to actually work and then it worked in the real world, there could be hundreds of millions of dollars of savings for insurance companies by by moving the signature block from the bottom to the top. Now it turns out that it's not, but there were there were definitely companies that tried it that got that got no effect. But but what I think Adam is saying here is that look, Francesca and Dan were two of four authors on that one paper, and there were two other studies that were done yep. that were around that. There was many other studies that looked at similar types of things around fraud and how you can go about them. And so that research wasn't just because of them. That research was there uh, in addition to them. And so by taking their part of it out, does it actually change the research? It's a fair question. I'm I'm not sure that I'm willing to say yes. Yeah. That it does change or or no, that it doesn't change. I think it is a different perspective though. And it's one that yes. gives me um because I've been, you and I have talked about this. The 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 fraud scandals have really rocked our world to a certain degree. There's an element of them that is just so dis uh, disheartening. Yes. So just kind of uh, just brings me angst that I am really this kind of gave me a glimmer of hope. And and, and I know that's. Um, yeah, yeah uh, I, can see, I can see why. And I, I agree with that, that there is something hopeful about that. To get back to Adam's perspective, I like the fact that he f is looking for big paradigm shifts. Yeah. 
that what interests him is like the work of Kahneman and Tversky in, you know, 40 years ago that really, um, really changes things like that. And I agree that that is cool and that we should be striving and, and searching for the next Kahneman and Tversky, right. the next uh, prospect theory. To, to, to build that new big ship. Yeah, yes. Right? Yeah. And, and I think, yeah. you know, the conversation about big ship versus hundreds of little ships, right? Well, you know, maybe that's not the best analogy because I think with what, you know, some of those little ships grow. They become larger ships because of the value that they find. Right. Um, and then what you're saying is that there's value in that. There's value in growing Absolutely. little ships into bigger ships. And that means finding those little pieces of information that are on the edge. The I'm I'm not groundbreaking changing this, but I'm adding another piece to the ship. And this ship is getting bigger and this ship is growing and different pieces of it. So it does become a, a big ship. And I think there there is value in that. I do like his perspective of saying if if that's all we're doing, then that's not a good thing. And I don't I don't necessarily think it is. I don't think that's what many of the scientists out there. I think some of them to get published are saying, "Hey, we have to you know add our piece to the big ship because it's easier. The incentives around this, the the way that you know they get promoted and other pieces are there." But I think many of them are actually, you know, putting that dinghy out and rowing across the the waves to look at that little atoll or island over there that says, hey, this could be cool. Did you feel like uh, Adam is basically saying, well, let's just wait for the old guard to die off? No, he he wasn't. I I thought that's where I thought it was going. And he said, no. Yeah. That's not it. And and I thought it was that was that was also another interesting piece. He said, I, I don't think it's the old guard. I think it's just the way that the system is structured in in this. And we just A, and we've talked about this before too, how do we change the structure? How do we change the way that research gets rewarded and that academics get promoted and tenure and all of the other facts of that? But in addition to that, I think you know, with this piece in particular, there is this aspect of saying, hey, you know, we just need to find a new way of looking at this. And it doesn't matter if you're old guard or new guard. It's just finding that new way. In some ways, I took his conversation with you to really represent a very progress oriented perspective, like it's again, it's not throwing off the old guard, but it's definitely looking forward and looking for the next paradigm shift. And, and I kind of love that. And it, it struck me as being like this perfect antithesis of GK Chesterton. The, who, who is GK Chesterton? Cause you just uh, uh, <laughs> lost <laughs> the, me. Well, Chesterton was uh, early 20th century uh, philosopher and defender of Christianity, uh, British, British guy, uh, fantastic writer, brilliant. He was sort of like a Rory Sutherland for the, you know, 1920s, <laughs> not, okay. not, the, not the 2020s. Um, but Chesterton was uh, believed that the tradition is, was a really good thing, but it's basically, he called it the democracy of the dead, you know, that we're, we're giving a lot of weight to people who have come before us in tradition. And he thinks, and Chesterton believed that that was a good idea. And to some degree, I felt like Adam was kind of saying, let's, let's not give too much weight to what's been done because 
you know, Aristotelian uh, physics worked great for a long time. Uh, Newtonian physics worked for a long time, and we're in a new era. We have a new way of thinking about things. So let's let's keep moving, and I, I and I completely endorse that. What what was the Chesterton quote that you said? He's well, Chesterton said. Uh, I'll give you the whole quote uh, because I, I find it so interesting. Chesterton says, "Tradition meets uh, tradition." means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about. <laughs> In other words, if you're alive and, you know, you're, we're, we're giving more credit, we're biased towards the newest ideas. And Chesterton was you know, not in favor of that. So, yeah, I, it's interesting because there's an aspect of it where I, I don't disagree with Chesterton, but then there's another aspect of it where I go, no, we don't have to be beholden just because these people said this and did this. And this is the way that things have always been done yeah, and 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 I think you you started this off with this idea that is it just dying off? And I think the the big piece of this is, you know, we had that conversation, or I had that conversation uh, with Adam about periodic table and kind of identifying yeah. behavioral sciences periodic table, but also this idea that you know it takes it's it's not about the old people having too much power; it's about the young people not having enough courage. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and yeah, that, that cool. I think is really interesting. So, yeah, that that was a great comment. Yeah, yes, and I and I think the the last piece that I'd like to talk to is just if we think about science, and we've touched on this already, is just the incentives are misaligned in academia, in my perspective, that the way that academic gets promoted, gets a tenure, gets a reputation and can do this actually is counter to really being able to necessarily do good science. And mm -hmm. I think we need to change that. I want to say we need more drapers studying drapes and sharing their observations. That's and I'm, I'm, I'm being a slightly hyperbolic, but I'm an advocate for Adam's idea of let's get more boats in the water. Yeah. And but, let's but, have but we're them. Not, we're, but Draper is not just studying drapes, but then looking at the stars and bringing in that or understanding. That's true. Why people like purple drapes over orange drapes versus, yes. you know, other things and bringing the, the, that knowledge into the fold. All that. Yes. Yeah. And Tim, do you, do you floss your teeth? <laughs> yes yes i do yeah yeah and and <laughs> i figured I, I should have known that you're going to bring this up yeah because you are a ritualistic flosser i am i am a ritualistic yeah. flosser but but he brings you're up, a believer i am a floss. believer and and it was kind of like there was a physical response when he said that and i found it fascinating because the the actual piece that he talked about this idea that the meta-analysis doesn't show a big difference and even though there's not really good research behind it if it was really powerful you would have that and by changing your behavior based on the science which is something that i always advocate advocate 
Mm-hmm. Are you and ready yet, to change your behavior? And yet I'm not feeling side? like I'm going <laughs> to advocate for that. And there's something about that. Because and it just you makes, believe in it. It makes because, me think, you yeah. know. But I, 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 love, I love that concept. I love the concept of saying sometimes science the, and this idea of, you know, the, the other piece that we talked about, about talking with strangers, you know, and the, the him going into, you know, these um, escape rooms and being with strangers because the evidence, the research says, you know, that's a good thing when in fact, in that situation and in that context, it it's wasn't, very, yeah you know? And so bad. we tend, this is, this is my piece on this. I think conflict, conflating the two is sometimes the research is the research and <laughs> and we tend to generalize it more than we should oh i i think every good scientist would agree that that we are collectively bad at general overgeneralization and we need to take it with a grain of salt and mm-hmm. apply it in our own lives judiciously, and everybody keep flossing. That's what I'm going to say. Keep flossing. Okay, let's wrap it up on that. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, folks, uh, we hope you have enjoyed this conversation that I had uh, with Adam and oh, Tim blah, blah, was. Blah. You know, conveniently away, doing whatever he was doing. Um, but and, and that with it, you learn something that you can take with you and find your groove this week. <laughs>